Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. And I am delighted to have on today's show, Pat Wren, founder and president of the Wren Wealth Management Group, and Jonathan Wolfbong, managing partner of Focus Investment Banking. So I am great to have you. It's great to have you on the show. And I always start the show by asking my guests, what are the trends in your industry or area of expertise that you think middle market CEOs need to know? So Pat, I'll toss that over to you. Okay. I uh, would say that there are a couple of trends that I've noticed, uh, both macro and, and micro. In other words, uh, top down and sort of bottom up from what I hear people tell me. And one for sure is technology. Technology in uh, all industries is affecting it. It, uh, in many cases, is replacing people. And that's a real issue, I think, uh, globally. Uh, Also, I would say regulation. Uh, Regulation has increased dramatically. Uh, I see it in my business, and I see it among my clients who are business owners. Uh, Compliance issues uh, take a lot of their time now that they didn't used to before. And finally, this is sort of a a stealth issue, and that is uh, taxes, income taxes. Uh, Most business owners are uh, formed as a sub-S business, and their taxes have increased dramatically over the last several years. The group in the top 10%, their income taxes have increased uh, 40% in the last several years. And it's come as a surprise to many of them. Hmm. So those are, you know, you know, very big sweeping trends. And I think in general, it would be helpful to me to understand how are these affecting wealth management? So uh, certainly taxes is rel- are relatively straightforward, but the, the advent of machines and, you know, re- machines re- replacing people, how does that affect wealth management? Well, I can tell you in my business uh, years ago, we had uh, two people full time, um, eight hours a day inputting data into a computer. Uh, today, that's all downloaded overnight. And so those two people are out of a job, at least that job. Mm-hmm. So they need to uh, be retrained or move on to do something else. And of course, they have. So that's w- one issue. I can get a lot more done today with less folks. Uh, and that's true with a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. So I would say uh, what I've gained in uh, uh, technology, I've lost in time to regulation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so what are some of the compliance and regulation issues that, are, that you're seeing? Well, Dodd-Frank has uh, added a, a level of complexity to our business and to other businesses in terms of reporting, uh, the amount of reporting we have to uh, undertake for the government agencies, both federal, state. State has kind of tagged along with Dodd-Frank. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, I would say that uh, it has also affected the whole area of banking, uh, traditional banking. The old days of having a, a, a friendly banker are gone. They're now committees, and, and uh, I would say financing is changing. And this may be something that Jonathan can speak to, but I think for the average business person, there are sources of financing outside of traditional banking that they probably need to investigate. Like what? Well, like uh, private equity. Uh, I get calls uh, about uh, once a month f- 
from non-traditional lending sources that ask me about my lines of credit, uh, the mortgage on my building, would I consider refinancing, uh, do I need money for expansion? And those are typically investment-type funds. They are not the traditional bank uh, with the big vault and the big building down the street. And why do you think that they're calling you, and why do you think they're calling you now? Because it's an opportunity. Uh, the banks uh, are not as friendly as they were in terms of lending. And uh, they see there are other people that have come into the market that see an opportunity um, that exists. And so we've heard a lot over the over 2015 about how favorable the market was for both acquisitions and for um, any kind of funding activity. Do you expect that that's going to continue throughout, throughout 2016? Oh, I think so. I think the demographics play to that. Uh, a lot of business owners are at a point in their life, uh, uh, just their age uh, is dictating that uh, it's time to maybe move on, do something else. Um, and there's a lot of cash. There's a lot of cash. Uh, large corporations, uh, investment bankers uh, are looking for a place to put that cash. Mm -hmm. So the demographics are there. Um, and I would say that that's the major driver. Okay. And Jonathan, this is your, your, your game. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what's happening with, uh, with deals and investment banking and what do you expect in 2016? Well, 2015 was a record year, and I'm going to uh, primarily address my comments to the lower middle market, a space we define as companies that do up to about $250 million in revenue, mm -hmm. as I think that's most relevant to your listeners uh, last year, if you look at what they call the league tables, there were some mega deals which made the volume of transactions and dollar amounts uh, uh, look uh, most significant. If you look at the Pfizer, some of the big pharmaceutical deals, Anheuser-Busch. But even in the lower middle market, the up to $250 million, it was a very robust year, and it's driven by a couple factors. One, historically low interest rates. Uh, almost all acquisitions have a leverage component, and so the cost of funds is a key driver. Two, uh, a tremendous amount of private equity money. As part of investment strategies, many pension funds, uh, employee funds, and high net worth individuals will have some alternative investments, and that's usually in the form of, of private equity investments. It was also driven by, we've come off several years of very positive results by what we call strategic acquirers, companies that are in the business. They have made, uh, had good profits. They've been able to accumulate very significant cash reserves. And you, with these historically low interest rates, are not making much of a return on cash sitting in your corporate coffers. So they've been very incented to go out and, and uh, make acquisitions. Mm -hmm. And then, as Pat mentioned earlier, there's been a real shift in, in the financing industry. Uh, we rarely anymore as a firm help people with traditional bank debt. Coming out of 2008, banks are very difficult to make any loan, in our view, that's not right out of the box. They're used to a very straightforward loan. You can get a car loan. You can get a secured revolver loan, uh, but any other type of facility, there are tremendous numbers of lenders 
Pat mentioned he gets a call uh, once a month. Uh, I get a call every day from uh, alternative financing sources. And, of course, you've seen some of that with the advent of the various companies that are advertising almost all the time on the radio, Um, you know, the direct lenders that will, for small business, make advances. They call them merchant advances against credit card receipts. So that's been a real shift in the industry. People are moving away from the bank, regulation, the paperwork, the approval process, the lack of decision-making by banks on anything other than a standard loan. And it's really driven uh, these tremendous number of what we call alternative finance uh, vehicles. Mm. So you mentioned strategic strategic buyers. And um, my understanding is that if a business owner is looking to sell, that in terms of getting the best value, strategic buyers are often going to be a great option for them. What does it take for a CEO to position him or herself to for a strategic buyer? Usually, you're right, strategic buyers will pay a higher multiple of earnings or EBITDA, earnings before interest in taxes. Uh, sometimes you find that's not the case when private equity groups want to acquire a what they would call a platform company. There are strategic, I look at strategic buyers in two ways. If they want to buy the company and have it as a standalone or an operating division, there is a lot of importance placed on management leadership, the employee base, uh, their procedures and systems. If a strategic is just buying a company to absorb the customer base, they are not as concerned about the management. They're just going to fold it into maybe an existing operation they have in that town. Then you look more at customer stickiness. So if I'm advising a company, when we put together what we call the offering memorandum or the information memorandum, one of the things that we do is put their customer stickiness. And by that, I mean if they've got major relationships, have a graph of how long they've kept those relationships. If they don't have, if it's people that are repeat business, you want to demonstrate that you have have a customer base. So it's important to have that type of information available. Hmm. And how, what kind of a, a um, timeline does the CEO need to be having this kind of really good reporting and solid uh, p- uh, paper trailer, you know, good, good numbers to be able to show? Pat's smiling. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yeah. It is. And, and, yeah. I, and most, most CEOs just aren't, aren't there. That's exactly right. Yeah, the easy answer is they should have from day one because it would have helped them in managing the business. But we both know that's not usually the case. Uh, The entrepreneur, business owner, he's worrying about working capital. He's driving his customers. He's driving his staffing. Uh, Accounting and finance and reporting usually is not a high priority uh, to most middle market business owners. Yeah, they're trying to get people paid. They're trying to get people paid. Uh, I've started a couple companies. I've laid awake at night worrying about making payroll, and I was not thinking about my accounting records. I was thinking about whether I could cover the check that I was going to write the next day. Saying that, you you should be looking at a, at least two or three years. Um, the time to start plan- planning for a sale of your company is not the week before you decide that I've had enough. I want to sell it by the end of the year. 
Start thinking several years in advance. The longer, the better. It's a long process. Uh, The typical sale process is uh, seven to nine months. I've seen them in four months, and I've seen them as long as 18. But clearly, uh, you need to look as far in advance as you can. And, and on that point, I want to just throw something out to your, to your listeners. Uh, check with your professional advisors, and if your corporate structure is a C corporation, uh, immediately call your CPA if you have less than 35 shareholders, and I've never seen a private business that had more, and have them convert you to either an LLC or an S-Corp. The C-Corporation's uh, structure is absolutely the worst possible thing you can have as a business owner of a closely held business. Because if you do have a sale transaction, you are going to pay two levels of tax, both at the corporate level and then when you take the money out of the corporation at your personal individual level. So little tidbit, if you are a C-Corp, call your CPA, tell him to change I'd one, ask him why he hasn't converted you already, but two, I would ask him to immediately change and convert your your corporate structure. Mm-hmm. So in terms of uh, posi- positioning for a strategic uh, buyer, I heard you say a couple things. One is make sure your numbers are together and that you can actually show some sort of a track record, especially with, with uh, your customer relationships. And then the other is, is really focus on your management team uh, so that this strategic, if they're taking you over, you know, has, has some good people that, they're, that are going to be left behind, right? Yeah, many times a business owner, uh, either because of his active involvement, sometimes he doesn't think anybody is as competent as he, run their businesses with kind of an iron fist. You know, they don't let their people develop. That is not attractive to a strategic or a private equity group that's looking at that company to be a platform investment. If I want to have a division in Alabama and they're going to report to the folks here in Atlanta, but they're going to be a division, I want good, solid people. And if I have a business owner who upon a sale may well take his money and move to the islands, if I haven't developed those people in place, the attractiveness to a strategic or a private equity group is uh, not near as great. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to ask Pat is I've seen them working with with clients on business planning. Whenever I talk to them about exit strategy, succession, there seems to be a lot of resistance. And even though everybody kind of knows that they should be thinking about exit planning and succession, it seems like it's very difficult to get CEOs to actually develop a real exit strategy. Why? I agree with that. Uh, Why, I think, is because it's emotional. I think uh, most business owners look at the business, you know, they talk to, uh, when they talk to you, they talk about the business as if it were a person or a child. Um, It's a very emotional um, sort of thing. And their identity is in the business. You know, I am Ren Wealth Management. So uh, if I move on, uh, who am I? You know, what have I developed outside of that? I had a great... uh, a teacher in my father who did not uh, work at retirement. And when he retired, he was a fish out of water. It was, it was good to see for me because it taught me something. But I would tell you that I would, uh, what we're talking about here is what we term in the wealth management arena as pre-liquid wealth. Every business is going to 
uh, turn into cash at some point that could be favorable or unfavorable. And how you manage that, I think, is a very important part of any business owner's career. So I would tell you that if you can bring the wealth management principles, which is to set objectives and, and uh, uh, outline strategies and monitor what's happening and change as you go along, those can go a long way to help design the exit strategy. You know, I tell business owners, you ought to run this business as though you were going to sell it tomorrow. And that sounds radical, but if you do that, you'll have a good business. You can walk away from it and um, take a six-month sabbatical. You have a business. If you have to be every, there every day, the business has you. Mm-hmm. So you said something, pre-liquid wealth. I, I'm, that sounds to me like a bit of an oxymoron. If, 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 you can't, if it's not liquid, is it really wealth? Certainly, certainly. 90% of the wealth in this country is not liquid. Um, it's in farmland, it's in businesses, it's in real estate, uh, it's in intangibles. Uh, people focus on the stock market and cash and bonds, but most of the wealth in this country is not liquid. So we refer to it as pre-liquid. Uh, what are the strategies? How can we enhance that pre-liquid wealth? So at the stage when it does become liquid, it provides for that business owner what they hoped it would provide. Mm-hmm. The other term that you had mentioned, Jonathan, was pla- being a platform company. And t- can you tell us a little bit about what, what that actually means? And sure. is, it, is it a good aspiration for a business owner to think about trying to be a platform company in, in a private equity? Or what are the implications of that for them? Well, I think the business owner needs to develop his company with a good management team, good customer base, and all those things that surround a good company, uh, and not really think whether it's going to be a platform uh, portfolio, an add-on. That will come. What a platform refers to is if you have a company, let's say that I'm a very large private equity group, and some of them now that we read about, the KKRs of the world, they have billions of dollars, and they have hundreds of companies. And let's say that I, as a a private equity group, have been involved in just uh, buying companies that are involved in uh, distribution or transportation. And I decide that I see a very good market developing in instrumentation that private equity group might hire a banker like myself to go out and find a company that is in instrumentation, making uh, gauges and dials. Their their first acquisition in the space would be called a platform acquisition. Subsequent acquisitions to build onto that, they typically refer to as add-ons. So it's just a little word there, but on the same token, that company, if he's done a good job building himself, he would be equally as attractive to another strategic company that was already involved in the instrumentation space. Mm -hmm. Do platform companies tend to get a premium over the add-ons? If it's in what we call a hot space, uh, yes, they do. Because they tend to to have more size. Mm -hmm. For instance, a very large private equity group that has a platform company that's doing $200 million in instrumentation, using that as an example, might be interested in a $10 million company as an add-on. That would be where it would be absorbed. Management strength wouldn't be as significant. Customers, technology, patents would drive the value. 
So a platform, by definition, is a standalone uh, entity that's got all the components of any attractive business, mm-hmm. and they will they will achieve a higher multiple, which is how most people uh, value companies is as a multiple of free cash flow. Mm-hmm. And what's the what's the typical multiple for a platform versus the add-on? Well, I think that's very difficult to uh, give you a standard answer uh, because it would vary by industry and scalability. But I, my experience has been they're always worth one or two times uh, extra turns mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes more than an add-on. Wow. And then you mentioned portfolios. So what's the difference between a portfolio company and an add-on, if there is one? A portfolio, an add-on might become a portfolio company. A portfolio, if you're a private equity group, you might have 250 companies in your uh, stable of investments. Each one of those would be considered a portfolio company. If you make another acquisition, it too becomes a portfolio company. An add-on would be one that might get absorbed into an existing portfolio company and lose its uh, uh, specific identity. Okay. So the brand goes away. The brand may go away if you're just buying. And again, I've done work and we do buy-side work for companies that will just look for specific things. I've had been engaged to find companies that had very strong management. We've got a good company, a good product. We need to hire a company, though, with better people. I've seen some that say, we need technology. We're losing it, so find me the technology, even if they don't have any customers yet. We have the customers. We need the technology. I've found uh, some buy side that we have the technology, but we don't have the customers. So it depends in each case as to what the criteria uh, for the acquisition are. Mm. One of the things that I find curious is that, and at least in the press, you hear a lot about how acquisitions don't typically go very well. Um, you know, the people can't seem to get along or, you know, the business owner doesn't really enjoy being an employee so much, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, and so I'm wondering from your, your perspective, you know, if you were going to guess what percentage of the acquisitions or mergers that you do actually do end up bonding and turning into a happy marriage that lasts a long time? Well, that is an interesting uh, question. I try. I I, I do try. That's a very good question. Uh, Many times, one, people, and I put this very broadly, don't like change. Uh, Anything that changes, they've been used to the benevolent boss who is almost like their parent Uh, They've been used to a very uh, loose, uh, touchy, uh, soft approach, and they've had a $20 million family business, and, you know, Susie's been there for 50 years, and she doesn't know how to use internet yet, and she doesn't know how to use email, (laughs) but she's been working with a business owner. And then they're acquired, and they're acquired by a strategic company or even a private equity that comes in and says, we need to have financial reports. And we need uh, to have people who know how to we, use the internet. We, we need to have people that know what the email account is. Susie's going to struggle with that. And as part of the deal, the business owner said, I want Susie taken care of because she's been with me 50 years. And many times Susie's going to struggle with that. Uh, the other thing you see is the business owner uh, can't let go. 
Uh, you read many times, which is true, that the business owner got a two-year consulting agreement during transition. Typically, those end up being six months. You want to transfer his relationships, but you need to get the business owner out sometimes because the employees will continue to go to the business owner for decisions. When the acquirer has given that responsibility and authority to their you know, their appointee. Um, and, and those are very real issues. What we try to do is prepare people that this is going to be a big change. Uh, the other thing you have to deal with, and Pat tucked on, touched on earlier, this is very emotional. So I've been very important to the business for the last 50 years. Everything about the business has been me. And now no one needs me. And so if you don't prepare your business owner, it's not just ego. He feels a little lost because what do I do now? Nobody's asking me any questions. Uh, and so you need to educate your folks in advance. Most of them shake out. I would say all of them have a six months to a year where noses get out of joint and feelings uh, get hurt uh, in most deals. It's just unavoidable. Mm -hmm. Pat, I see you nodding. You want to make a comment? Well, it's I could have given him the script. Um, I, I've seen this time after time. And, and really, I think a business owner needs to be prepared uh, to leave uh, sooner rather than later. And uh, I always tell those folks that we need to design first the financial part of it. Is there enough money for me to leave if I walked out the door tomorrow? And let's totally discount any um, consulting fees or back end employment stuff. Or well, whatever. any tail. Right. Let's totally con let's totally discount this amount of money we're going to get in three years or five years because the chances are you're not going to get it. I mean, the chances are high you're not going to get it. Do you have a person? I'm trying to figure out if you guys have a, a guess as to how many don't work out. Mm. When you say work out, it works out for the acquirer. You're you're talking, I think, more personally for mm -hmm. the owner. Uh -huh. And they, they, I think all owners uh, grumble about selling the company that they, you know, it wasn't, they could have gotten more or they, it wasn't the right time or whatever it is. So I would just say that's the nature of the beast in a way. Um, uh, or they see someone acquire it and it does so much better than it did when they had it because they had Susie and their son and their cousin and, and they were paying personal expenses out of the business. And, you know, it was sort of a personal pocketbook. Um, it was a lifestyle uh, more than a business. So I would say that, that most of them do, do grumble. Um, but number one, my responsibility is to make sure there's enough money for them to walk. And uh, number two, I would say that uh, they need to be prepared to leave sooner rather than later because there will, there will, there will, there will develop reasons why they um, have become antiquated. <laughs> you know, they're no longer relevant. And that hurts. I mean, personally, that hurts. But I think you need to be prepared. You need to be prepared to retire to something versus retiring from something. And um, I'm very involved, as, as Jonathan is, in philanthropy. And that's usually a salvation for a lot of folks. They can now turn their attention and their expertise. They're used to getting things done to an area where there are needs. Yeah, uh, that's uh, Pat makes some excellent points. I mean, I think there's 
there's a real challenge for a lot of business owners. And you, now that you've met us, can tell from looking at Pat and I, I'm certainly closer to 70 than I am 60. Uh, <laughs> there, there are a lot of business owners that have been so focused on their business for so long. They have no other interest. They have no other outside activities. And even though they know it's time to sell, either because it's the maximum value kind of it's at the value curve. It's as good as it's going to get. It's as good as it's going to get. I'm getting pressure from my wife. Maybe there's a health issue. Maybe his wife has a health issue. He knows or she knows it's time. But I've had him call me up literally a month later and say, one, can you help me find something? You know, I'm lost. What do I do? And so that's one of the things that you deal with uh, in a in a closely held entrepreneurial driven type company. They need to have somewhere else to go. They can have the same level of commitment and effort. I've got a friend of mine that works full time for a dollar a year and heads up uh, Atlanta's largest community food bank. He goes to work every day. Uh, he he doesn't do it for the money. He does it for his sanity, for his personal satisfaction. And because he's working so many years, you just can't cut it off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and all that skill and expertise and management talent and Absolutely. you know leadership and all that's got to got to do something with yeah. it. Uh, so the one of this to turn the conversation a little bit. I always have guests on the show who know each other and have worked together, and obviously you guys are very cordial. Um, but for the benefit of our listeners, how do you know each other, and how do you support and work with each other in business? Well, let me maybe address that. All right. Um, I met Pat probably 10 years ago and have seen him uh, just around town and run into various networking meetings and maybe an annual lunch. But about three years ago, I was introduced to a company in town, literally three years ago, that was considering a transaction. And they had two uh, owners, two primary owners, uh, one about five to seven years older than the other, uh, a man and a woman. And the gentleman, the older, was uh, wanting to, uh, he was looking to exit and literally move to the islands Mm -hmm. where he is right now. Uh, I was introduced to him. All right, so we know the story has a happy ending. (laughs) That was a a spoiler. There you go. It's got a happy. uh, I didn't know at the time that Pat was representing him, but as I I started having uh, lunch with this, uh, these two individuals once a quarter and educating them on the process and helping them get prepared, not only financially, but mentally for the process. Uh, As we got into the process, I found out that Pat was their financial advisor, their wealth advisor, and the, uh, the gentleman who is now in the islands who really wanted to walk away uh, his partner, the young woman, wanted to stay, and it's had a happy ending to this point. But the gentleman had a very specific number he had to have in order for him to fulfill his retirement objectives. So as the transaction— Pat, did you help him get that? Did you help him figure out that number? Absolutely. All right. Yeah, And uh, quite a long time ago, um, prior to the three years. So we had done a lot of work in the retirement plan area. We'd— Told him what number he needed. And of course, that changes. That changes maybe every six months. Uh, so yes. That, and then when uh, the opportunity presented itself, we had to uh, 
update everything and and based on the offers, see if that was possible. And we had to work closely together. Pat uh, took a very active role in, and one of the reasons it took three years is I will not, to the best of my ability, take a company to market if their expectations are above what I think I can achieve in the marketplace. Many business owners always overvalue their company. It's like, you know, I think my grandkids are the prettiest, and you might look at them and say they're really pretty ugly, but to me, they're the prettiest. Well, a lot of business owners, and rightfully so, think that their company is the prettiest, it's the most valuable, it's the most unique, it has the most differentiators, and one of my jobs is to temper expectations so that we're successful. This mutual client of ours had to get to an earnings level that we could achieve a valuation. There's no sense in exposing yourself to the market because there's dangers in that. If you expose yourself to the market, we call it, and you're unsuccessful with a transaction. And you're marked. I typically tell people it's a three-year wait before you go out again. It's like getting left at the altar. It doesn't matter if it's the bride or the groom that walks away. Everybody is tainted for a period of time. So you want to be sure you don't take a company to market before it's time and before you achieve it. And then as we got the offers, Pat and his team helped us evaluate very specifically and in great detail the money and the after-tax effect to meet his client's objective, which also was my client's objectives. And we had a very successful uh, transaction and truly, and truly, our mutual client is now in the islands. Great, great, great. And so as you think about moving forward, I mean, that how, how, I mean, so the deal happened and so what now? Well, we'd like some more deals like that, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it worked out well. Um, it, you know, this, this speaks to the, uh, the three-year period was the pre-liquid planning that we talked about earlier. So how do we enhance the value uh, so that, when it's ready, uh, we can achieve maximum value. So where do we go from here? Uh, We expect to work together uh, some more. As I mentioned uh, earlier in my uh, beginning remarks, the demographics are there. There are a lot of people that are our age that are thinking about this whole area and and what to do. Uh, They don't want the business to die when they die. Uh, So there is this whole idea of, I've got a legacy here. How do I enhance that? What is it going to be? And, you know, as you look into 2016, Pat, I I know that you have a best-selling book that you recently authored. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that and and what your expectations are for, for 2016. Sure, sure. We spoke a little bit about philanthropy. My experience has been that in most communities, uh, business owners are very active in their community. Uh, they're on the boards of the community foundation. They're the hospital, the church, the synagogue. They're, uh, typically, that's something, it's just part of their DNA for most mm-hmm. people. And, you know, I hear most business owners say, I didn't do this on my own. I feel like I ought to help some people that maybe need some help. Uh, I want to give back in some way. So I wrote this book based on those experiences. It's called Finding Your Money's Greatest Purpose. 
and um, how to design your legacy is what the whole book is about. And it's mostly my experiences and a little bit of um, advice on what to do uh, if you have if you have this desire. Hmm. And have you found that to be true, Jonathan, too? I mean, you mentioned that uh, that the business owners need to do something and do most of your your clients after the sale, like pick a, a cause and devote their time and energy to that? It, it, very, very frequently, most times. Uh, an example is I, I've sold a company several years in Florida. Uh, after the sale, uh, the gentleman ended up getting very involved and went on the board of Villanova University and got very involved in uh, their plans to build a university in Florida that is comparable to Notre Dame. They're calling it the Notre Dame of the South. It's called Ava Maria. He's gotten very involved with that, not only in terms of his time, because it was an engineering company, uh, but also he's uh, financially been supporting that. So, yes, we usually find someone... Uh, almost all of our, our folks at Exit get very involved in things. Uh, some of them will end up doing another business. Or I've got a situation now where I am advising the second generation. I sold the father's company 10 years ago. He took some of the proceeds to back his son in a business and the son reached out to me the other day and I'm working with him not on a sale but we're going to try to help him get some additional capital because his business has taken off. Mm-hmm. And so what are some other options? So you, you have philanthropy, you have another business. There's always the go to the islands. Are you seeing anybody do anything else? Is that the range of the world of what people do? I've seen a school. Uh, one of my other uh, past experiences, uh, they now, and I don't know if they're paid or not, but they pretty much are working, uh, uh, as a uh, professor, a visiting non-tenured professor teaching a course in entrepreneurship, and I think that's keeping them uh, busy. It's something. There is another option. Uh, a, a former uh, partner of mine uh, has two sons, and uh, he transferred the ownership of the business to the two sons some time ago. And uh, they keep him around on a consulting basis and he's got an office to go to and, <laughs> you know, he can uh, visit with his longtime clients that he's had. Um, and he's still sharp enough that he can add some value, but he's also smart enough to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Now that, that latter part is, is rare, I think. Um, but he, he's not the kind of guy that would walk into the current CEO's office and say, you know, in my day, we used to do it this way. And uh, bless him for that, because he's <laughs> he, he's smart enough to know that. So that is a third alternative. It's rare. It's rare. Um, many companies do have still keep an office for the founder, uh, mm-hmm. but I found uh, the lights are usually off. <laughs> I think some of this too is driven by a fundamental kind of shift in America's thinking about age and retirement. When I Again, I'm closer to 70 to 60, and I don't know how old Pat is, but I think we're contemporary <laughs> otherwise. When, when I grew up, the deal in America was you get to 60 or 62, you retire, you take a travel trailer, and you move to Florida. 
And everybody, and in fact, my father had mandatory retirement with his company. He worked for DuPont. At 62, there were no options. You had to leave. What we're seeing is business owners and people in general are working much longer. I think it's been somewhat fueled by us watching the news at night when we see Barbara Walters in her 80s still working, when we see the Americans now don't think of retirement at 60 or 55, and so it's aging it out. And so you're seeing uh, more options for older people. There's, you know, 20, 50 years ago when we grew up at my age, probably no one would hire me. You're, You're over 60. Now we're seeing very active people, very sharp people working much longer, including business owners. Right. I think in the... Uh, if I can add to that, in the wealth management business, um, we're getting away from the term retirement. Uh, and a term that's being used more and more is longevity planning. Oh, so I like that. Yeah. I, d- I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Longevity planning. And so we're, we're assuming we're going to live longer. What's that going to look like? Mm-hmm. And uh, what the other theme that I'm hearing that I would love it if both of you would comment on is this innate need that people feel to be of service, right? People need to feel useful. People, you know, need to feel like their skills and talents are being, um, being used in some kind of a way. And I think that that's, as, as you mentioned, Pat, you know, even more so true of, of business owners. Um, so, I mean, yes, you guys agree. Mm-hmm. Totally. I, I mean, the people I know and work with, uh, fit that category. They, they have something to contribute. There's something inside. And, you know, it sounds cliche-ish, but they really want to make the space they've been given better than, you know, as a result of their being there. Mm-hmm. Um, they may not verbalize it. Some don't verbalize it. But um, most people have this innate desire to leave things better than they found them. Great. Now, how can uh, our listeners get in touch with you if they want to hear more about anything that you've mentioned today? The easiest way is uh, to visit my website. It's ren, R-E-N-N, wealth.com. Jonathan? You can certainly find me on our website, focusbankers.com. Just uh, we have a listing by office of location, and there's a hot link to my email address right there. Great. Well, thank you for a wonderful show. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.